whenever I think of the Loch Ness Monster, I immediately think of something prehistoric. I think from all the pictures I've seen and the tales I've heard and the accounts of these sightings, it kind of fits. I mean, there's even been a really bad underwater shot of this big-bodied creature with paddle-like fins, and then any other shot that's been taken seems to be of this long-necked plesiosaur-like thing, like, sort of kind of periscope-like surveying its surroundings and then disappearing again. I mean, I quite personally don't think that's what it is, but we can all hope and dream. <laughs> um... I think the running theme seems to be an appearance that is something prehistoric. So you have this idea of a creature that's evaded extinction, that hides out in the log and sort of wanders the murky depths, um, is highly elusive and just occasionally sort of scares the unwary spectator. But with that, I feel it's always been assumed that it's nothing particularly dangerous or sinister, just another mythological icon shrouded in mystery. But I found a story that dates back to the 6th century, um, and it follows the the life of St Columba, an Irish abbot, who happened to be travelling around the land of the Picts, which is now recognised as East and Northern Scotland. And on the shore of the loch, he came across some local Pict people burying the body of a man, who was said to have been dragged into the lake by a creature and mauled um, to death. So being an absolute sadist in my opinion he sent one of his followers to swim out into the lake and um, to retrieve a boat from the opposite side now my guess is to do a recce of the lake to have a look around and see if they can spot it but if he is said sadist it might also be that he wanted to antagonize the creature to come out but if that was his intention it didn't have to wait very long because the creature appeared assuming to uh, to eat and to devour this man being a man of god as everybody else looked on in absolute fear and terror saint columba was said to have shouted go no further do not touch the man go back at once and it was said that as if by ropes the creature was pulled back into the depths and it just vanished now i find this really exciting because i've only ever heard tales of sightings where this elusive beast pops its head up and disappears again but it actually gives way to this prehistoric legend that is actually quite fearsome and potentially very dangerous have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back, all of you lovely listeners. I am so excited that all of you exist and that you're all real. Are they? They might be. Most of them. The vast, all the ones that matter are. All of my favorites. And if you're not real, I can just use pseudoscience to make you real, and it's magic. And I think that's worthwhile, because they're pretty remarkable. We want to welcome all of you back. I want to remind you that you can reach out to us on social media at Just A Story Pod, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also check out our website, JustAStoryPod.com, where you can find all of our fun sources and links to things like our merch store. In our merch store, we have various merchandise, which has various pieces of artwork that I have variously done variously throughout the year. So what you're telling me is you've been varied. I have been various. Very, varied. I have not been varied. I've been various. I'm using the word incorrectly. I've committed. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> you can also find links to our Patreon where you can help support the show uh, and get access to all sorts of fun rewards and extra episodes and fun stuff like that. And of course, there's one other way you can reach out to us. You can dial us up on the 
Urban Legend Hotline. And the number for the Urban Legend Hotline is 512-222-3375. You can dial that number, reach our voicemail, and tell us anything that you might want to tell us. Maybe your favorite urban legend, maybe a joke, maybe a scary story, or a pirate yarn if you have a pirate yarn, or a fishtail. Pirate yarn? Yes. No fishtails. Why not? We're telling them a fishtail this week. Is it a fish? I don't know, but that's what all the papers in 1933 said. Is like, is it just a fishtail? Which apparently is like an entire subgenre of folklore that I didn't know about. Of course. It was this big. Oh, a fish story. Yeah. They're just not American. <laughs> it sounds more proper if you say tail. It does, like a fairy tale. Yes. <laughs> not a fairy story. Hey, you got a fairy story? Okay. Well, now that I've realized that it's not a new branch of folklore I need to study, it's just lies. It's just lies about big fish. We can continue with our fish story. Tale. So in 1933, there was a poem in a newspaper, and I'm going to share it with you now. They've seen a monster in Loch Ness, which speeds along quite frisky. I'm not surprised they're seeing things in such a land of whiskey. Oh, it's clever. It's judgmental AF. (laughs) But it does bring us... To the story at hand today. The story at Finn. Of course. Today we're going to do the much anticipated, the much requested Loch Ness Monster. Woo, cryptids. <laughs> I have such a mixed relationship with the cryptid episodes. I was like, no, and they're like, oh, this is so interesting. Well, it's like, I feel like if we try to say, like, is it real or is it not real, we can upset people. Because I know that there are people that believe it's real. So We're destroy people's faith in Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster? Well, no, but they might be disappointed in us. <laughs> well, the Loch Ness Monster has been around for a long time. It has been drawing tourists and hunters and the crypto- reality show sure. programs. Cryptozoologists. And- yeah, the History Channel. <laughs> and the History Channel. Discovery Channel. And the Learning Channel. And... Bass Fish in Television. I don't think they've done that yet, but it'd be a good one. Oh my God, that's what I want. Let's get Jim Bob out there on the lock. Yep, all right. We're going out today to look for the Loch Ness Monster. Oh my God, better. Let's get the swamp people. Oh, dem Hadamagators ain't got nothing on this Loch Ness Monster, I tell you what, Sha. Can we team up with my stepdad to do? Yes, yes we could. Let's get the Cajun Navy out there, baby. We got this. <laughs> hey, guys, Travel Channel, call us. <laughs> the people have been traveling to the lock for nearly 100 years trying to see the Loch Ness Monster. Just see it. Well, of course. Not catch it. It's big. Or not. Depends on who you ask. Today, a million people vi- visit the lock each year. Shut up. Creating 25 million pounds for the economy. Now, you're saying like, oh, are they all hunting for the Loch Ness? That was my first thing. Like, well, you could just go because it's really pretty. It is really pretty. But an estimated 85% going are hoping to add to the 1,000 plus sightings of the monster. Yay. So, of course, Loch Ness is a lake. Loch means lake. What? I know. What? No. I thought this monster existed in the physical machinations of a home protection device a home protection device or you could think like a lock that's what i thought like i'm talking about like a channel oh like a lock and dam yeah oh no that would have been too wise (laughs) not just wise ass loch ness is a long deep lake 
that lies on the Great Glen, which is a geological fault line splitting Scotland. It's 22 miles long and 754 feet at maximum depth. It's the UK's largest body of fresh water. So it's big, too. Oh, yeah, it's huge. It's big like the monster's big. It would have to be big, right? Right. One would think. Now, it is connected to the North Sea um, via the River Ness. There's also a series of canals running through the UK that connect for shipping, and one, the Caledonian Canal, is connected to the lock. Okay. So that's important. Because we're going to get to the migratory habits. Exactly. Of the... Whatever. But like I said, people have been traveling to the lock for just pleasure and for just, you know, going out on a nice picnic day, maybe out on the boat. Like 15% of them? Is that No, before three years. Even in the early 20th century, when naturalists complained about the noisy, polluting steamboats full of holiday people with fiddles and parasols conspicuous on the deck. Fiddles and parasols? The end of humanity is nigh. So it's hard to say what the original sighting of the Loch Ness Monster is, affectionately known as Nessie. By the way, if you would like a quick primer on this before we begin our episode, might I recommend The Ballad of Nessie? The Disney cartoon? The six-minute Disney cartoon, which is fabulous. It is really good. So in the 1930s, there was an article in the Northern Chronicle about three young anglers, and they went fishing for trout out on Loch Ness. At about 8.15, we heard a terrible noise on the water, and looking around, we saw about 600 yards distant, a great commotion, with spray flying everywhere. Then the fish, or whatever it was, started coming toward us. During its rush, it caused a wave about 2.5 feet high, and we could see a wriggling motion, but that was all, the wash hiding it from view. What was it? No one knows. Okay. And, you know, the whole Nessie thing really wasn't big yet, and Mm -hmm. so it wasn't really talked about much. Okay. And so when was that? Like 1930. Three guys fishing in Scotland saw something. So in 1933, Alex Campbell, a writer, heard that his friends, Aldi and John McKay, had spotted something in the water while driving past Loch Ness. Hmm. I published it in the Inverness Courier under the title Strange Spectacle on Loch Ness. What was it? Something. Loch Ness has, for generations, been credited with being the home of a fearsome looking monster. But, somehow or other, the water kelpie has always been regarded as myth, if not a joke. Now, however, comes the news that the beast has been seen once more. So according to the story, a well-known businessman living near Inverness and his wife, a university graduate, were driving along the north shore of the loch not far from Abracan Pier when they were startled to see a tremendous upheaval on the loch, which previously had been as calm as the proverbial mill pond. They said that it was about a mile from shore. The report continued. There, the creature disported itself, rolling and plunging for fully a minute, its body resembling that of a whale, and the water cascading and churning like a simmering cauldron. Soon, however, it disappeared in a boiling mass of foam. Both onlookers confessed that there was something uncanny about the whole thing, for they realized that here was no ordinary Denzian of the depths, because, apart from its enormous size, the beast... In taking the final plunge, sent out waves that were big enough to have been caused by a passing steamer. 
Okay, so it was not a passing steamer. No. Okay, so we're clear on that. Not a big boat, no. Okay. So the couple waited around for at least a half hour in the hopes of seeing it again, but to no avail. Well, well, they they gave it a, a good try. Solid effort. Later, the McKays clarified their sightings, and Aldi was the only one that saw any object or animal. At first, she thought it was just two ducks fighting. Hmm. But once she finally saw the cause of the splashing, she described two dark humps, estimated total length of 20 feet. And her husband only saw the splashing. I like the duck idea. Maybe it's fighting ducks. Quack. A mile offshore. No. Quack. Mighty ducks, Jacob. Mighty. Mighty ducks. It would have to be. (laughs) But really, it could be two mid-sized animals closer than that. Well, so one person did write into the paper, a steamship captain, John McDonald. And he said, I am afraid that it was their imagination that was stirred and that the spectacle is not an extraordinary one. And he went on to say that the kind of event was common to see in his 50 years of experience in the lock. Sporting salmon in a lively mood who, by their leaping out of the water and racing about, created a great commotion in the calm waters and certainly looked strange and perhaps fearsome when viewed some distance from the scene. Okay, I like this guy. He's on the team. Good on you. You wrote a letter. That's positively Southern of you. And you've cited your sources. 50 years experience. You are... Oh, yeah. Expert. Solid material. Expert. So, as one writer said in 1938, there's this one vital question regarding it, which must always cause warrantable doubt. Why have we heard of it only within the last five years or so, when there's no authenticated record of its existence in the centuries which have gone by? So remember, whenever Campbell's writing up this first big sighting of the Loch Ness Monster, he said, This has been seen for generations. The Loch Ness has for generations been credited with being the home of a fearsome-looking monster. He did say that. He did. Did he cite his sources? No. (laughs) Now, there were some interesting sightings that happened previously. Okay. But had not really become part of the lore of the area. One that I love is in 1852, as reported in the Inverness Courier, an armed mob gathered with pitchforks at Loch Ness to battle a sea serpent. Did they win? Oh, they won. What was it? Did they get it? Or did they banish it? Several ways to win here. A scene from Loch End. They saw something swimming across the loch. Some thought it was the sea serpent coiling along the surface. And others, a couple of whales or large seals. The inhabitants made ready to defend themselves with everything from battle axes to pitchforks. At last, a venerable patriarch came to the conclusion that they were maybe just a pair of deer. And he fetched his gun and was just about to fire when he threw it down and shouted in Gaelic, God protect us. They're the water horses. No! Thinking they were as ill-omened water horses or kelpies of folklore. But it didn't turn out to be water horses. What was it? Two ponies from the nearby estate less than a mile away. They were (laughs) indulging themselves with a dip in the cooling waters of Loch Ness. How dare they? Got the villagers all excited. Pitchforks and everything. Now in 1868, in Loch Ness, a monster was found on the shores of the loch. And large groups of people gathered to see it. But it turned out it was a bottle-nosed whale about six feet long. 
Interesting. How did it get there? Well, they said that it had, of course, been caught at sea and it had been cast adrift in the waters of Loch Ness by some waggish crew. Waggish. The, <laughs> the ruse was eminently successful. Well, as far back as 1830, there was definitely chitter chatter about it. For example, Sir Walter Scott included a passage in his preface to a novel called The Monastery, which said, There was a small but deep lake from which eyes that yet look on the light are said to have seen the water bull ascend and shake the hills with its roar. Ah, yes, yes. The water bull. Right. There are many folklore creatures that could be associated with this old folklore that he's talking about. But before we get there... Let's talk about what could be considered more recent. Okay. If you, if you go all the way back to the pics, you know, and things like that, is a saint. Okay. We love saints. We do. Here at the Just a Story Podcast Studios. Catholic Bell Seminar. In our garage. <laughs> <laughs> you make it sound fancy. It's a carport. <laughs> so St. Columba, who lived from 521 to 597, has an interesting report in his hagiography. We've talked about hagiographies before. They are the lives of saints written up usually... After they're dead. After they're dead. Many times generations after. And they purport all of the amazing adventures that the saints had. It's basically like superhero canon. Yeah. It's like like action stories. (laughs) It's the pulp of their time. So this hagiography of St. Columba was written 100 years after his death by the ninth abbot of Iona. And just like all the hagiographies from the time, it's full of magic and monsters and supernatural forces. He calms storms. He turns water into wine. He summons water from stones. He drives out a demon lurking in a milk pail. I mean, just your standard stuff. Yeah. (laughs) He enchants a stick so that animals would impale themselves on it every night. Oh. You know? What is the purpose? To what end, St. Columba? So many ends. Well, the ends of so many animals, at least. My God. <laughs> but as many Loch Ness monster, Nessie cryptozoologist, I don't think they have a name. Nessieologist? Sure. Now they do. Like to cite chapter 28 of his hagiography. How an aquatic monster was driven off by virtue of the blessed man's prayer. So he prayed away the monster. On another occasion also, when the blessed man was living for some days in the province of the Picts, he was obliged to cross the river Ness, and when he reached the bank of the river, he saw some of the inhabitants burying an unfortunate man, who, according to the account of those who were burying him, was a short time before seized as he was swimming and bitten most severely by a monster that lived in the water. His wretched body was, though too late, taken out with a hook by those who came to his assistance in a boat. God, I hope he was bitten first. Me too. This was too late. Mm-hmm. The blessed man on hearing this was so far from being dismayed that he directed one of his companions to swim over and row across the cobble that was moored at the farther bank. So he did that, but the monster, which so far from being satisfied, was only roused for mere prey, was lying at the bottom of the stream. And when it felt the water disturbed above by the man swimming, suddenly rushed out and giving an awful roar, darted after him, with its mouth wide open, as the man swam in the middle of the stream. Then, the blessed man, observing this, raised his holy hand, 
while all the rest, brethren as well as strangers, were stupefied with terror, and, invoking the name of God, formed the saving sign of the cross in the air, and commanded the ferocious monster, saying, Thou shalt go no further, nor touch the man. Go back with all speed. Then, at the voice of the saint, the monster was terrified, and fled more quickly than if it had been pulled back with ropes, though it had just got so near to the man as he swam that there was not more than the length of a spear staff between the man and the beast. Then all the villagers give glory to God and the blessed man, and even the barbarous heathens who were present were forced by the greatness of this miracle, which they themselves had seen, to magnify the God of the Christians. Cool story, bro. Cool story, bro. First of all, it doesn't take place in the lock. It's the river. The river nest. Not the same thing. But they are connected. <laughs> well, maybe he drove him back into the lake when he said his magic prayer. Maybe so. Maybe that's why we have a monster. That's probably it. Maybe he made him immortal, too. Probably so. I mean, proof. But, Boom. I mean, as we talked about before, these hagiographies are not at all strict biographies of people. They are, you know, just... Stories. Fiction. Stories. Are they just stories, Jacob? Catholic bells over there. You're blushing like you know that you'd get in trouble if you said this in school. I don't want the Pope to call me. I do. (laughs) I love Frankie. I want to be his friend. Someone's yelling at me in Italian (laughs) or Spanish or something. Ooh, put me on. Let's talk shoes, Pope. But like... There's a there's a thing with like British Isles and serpents of one manner or another. You got St. Patrick who drives out the snakes. True. You got St. George. He's not on the British Isles, but he, you yes. know, he has his... They like him. They do. They're fond of him. And he also fights a big serpenty thing. He does. All the people he's based off of. Whatever. <laughs> you know, we're, we're going to let St. George exist for the purposes of this episode. And, you know, that that's not uncommon. With yes, this, this serpent-like creature is a very common you motif. Know, motif representing... The, the devil. The devil. It, right. it means evil the devil. Or evil, etc. The devil is evil, so... Is he? But that's what they told <laughs> me in Sunday school. Excuse me, the Pope's calling? <laughs> One second. <laughs> I thought I heard Catholic bells. It's the papal phone. It's like the bat phone. It's red like his shoes. So, for example, I pulled up a few fun little hagiography bits. Margaret the Virgin, a saint, was swallowed by Satan in the shape of a dragon, from which she escaped alive when the cross she carried irritated the dragon's innards. Clear sign that the dragon was evil. So, cool medieval painting of that. In 1028 AD, St. Olaf is said to have killed a sea serpent in Norway, throwing its body into the mountain. St. Jimma Gagani, who died in 1903, kept seeing the devil in the f- several different forms, including a hideous, hairy, ape-like man. Bigfoot. Or a big black dog. The black dog. Who would <laughs> grab her by the hair and rip her out of bed onto the floor, horribly cursing at her and God, shouting, war, war against you and your spiritual director. That is a very, like, office-friendly term for God. Your spiritual sure. director. Yeah, it kind of is. I know. Sounds um, like an HR report. Yeah. What's your official title? Uh, she also could levitate, had stigmata, and was often found in ecstasy. Good for her. But you also do have to wonder if some of St. Columba's stories are related to some of the older folklore from the area. 
Right, because this is not an anomaly. There are many water entities in the on the British Isles, and particularly in Scotland. Yeah, he even mentions them in the articles about Loch Ness monsters. It's right. It's a kelpie or a water horse or a water bull. Is an even different version of them? I know. It's the only mention I found of a water bull, which I'm very excited exists in general because that's a terrifying idea. But so these kelpies and water horses, what is that? Something's scary. Let's get into it. The guy uh, with the shotgun was like, shit, it's a water horse. <laughs> Dropped it. Ran away. Run away screaming. Run away screaming. <laughs> So kelpies are shape-changing aquatic entities, but they are the most common water spirit in Scottish lore. And it may derive from the Scottish or Gaelic words kalapich or kalpak, which I'm sure I have butchered beyond all recognition. Sorry. But that means heifer or cult. Now, they are mostly found in rivers and streams. They're associated with running water, and there's a completely different entity for lakes. Yes. However... Some people blur those lines when they tell stories and Kelpies appear in lakes just because... Stories. Stories. It's a story. It's a story. (laughs) Maybe it is. Maybe. So they're like My Little Ponies? Basically, but evil. Oh, evil My Little Ponies. Yes. Cool. So they, according to some stories, only appear outside of water when they are summoned, when they are hungry, or when they have to go to a mandatory fey gathering like the tithe, which happens every seven years. Essentially, what you need to know about them is that they are not nice. And if you see websites touting that they are nice, they are... Run by Kelpies. Run by Kelpies. (laughs) Definitely. This is true. There's fey folk all over it. (laughs) Disinformation campaign fey folk. (laughs) There's some word mashup I want to do with like equine and espionage, but I just cannot make it happen. So, they usually appear as sweet little tame ponies. And most of the time, they are either black or gray in color. However, you can tell that they're not sweet little ponies because their hooves are reversed. Creepy. Now, some are said to have manes made of serpents, Medusa manes. That is the Aberdeenshire variant. There's also a version associated with the River Spey that is white. And this one lures his prey by singing a pretty song. Oh, look at that. I want a singing pony so bad. You just said it's not nice. Not that one. Not nice. You said like five I times. didn't say I wanted a Kelpie. I want, said I wanted a singing pony. Different things. And then there's another version that's like greenish gray and has like a seal-like skin mm. and seaweed hair. And if they don't have seaweed hair, at the very least, their mane and tail always look wet. So that's your tail. That's your tail. That's Besides how, the backwards hose. Well, if you can't see their hooves. And you need some way of telling whether or not you should approach a pony that you've met singing by a stream. The answer's yes. I mean, no. <laughs> the answer's no, most likely. Now, they're said to make themselves irresistible to both humans and fey folk. And that anyone that sees them will attempt to touch them whether or not they are acquainted with the dangers such an action would pose. They're particularly enticing to children. And a lot of times, children will mount these charming-looking creatures and find themselves stuck to their magical hide. You said they come out when they're hungry? Yes. Hmm. Hmm. In its equine form, a kelpie is said to be able to extend the length of his back to carry many riders together into the depths. So it can stretch and turn into like a little singing pony dachshund. Fantastically terrifying. Though some are said to be strictly pescatarian. There's a common story that's told about several children climbing onto the creature's back 
and one child has reached up to pet it and then realizes what a mistake he's made. And in some versions, like the kid's whole hand and in some versions, just a finger has stuck to this Kelpie's magical sticky pony skin. Oh, so he's Kelpie food. No, he's not because he cuts off the hand or the finger or the arm or whatever he has to cut off and manages to get away. So this is what your old Scottish grandpa tells you when you ask him why he's missing a finger. Yes, that is exactly what I thought when I read this. So they do like to eat people. Uh, Young women and children seem to be particularly at risk of being eaten, especially if they're playing near a lake or a river on a Sunday. Oh. Yeah, that is the all-you-can-eat buffet day for the Kelpies. Mm, Breaking that Sabbath. I know it. Lou Yuri's going to get you. Kelpie's going to get get you. you. Basically, any Catholic monster is going to get you. Uh. Now, they can take the form of humans. In rare cases, they can appear as pretty ladies that attract men and capture them. But most often, if they take human form, they're men. And you can spot a human disguised as a Kelpie by the water weeds hidden throughout their hair. Uh. And sometimes they have hooves. Oh, that makes me think of the stories of the devil. What, the Joyce Carol Oates story? Well, that is in the Joyce Carol Oates story, but it's an old folktale of... You know, you're going out dancing. Yes. And dancing with somebody all the night away. And then you notice that he has hooves. And that's usually a bad sign. Usually not good. Like, I feel know. like if you saw that in a Tinder profile, you'd be like swiping the not yes way. Left. <laughs> so, yeah. And I don't know if they have them on all of their limbs or just their lower limbs. But if someone waves at you and you see a hoof, Walk away. do not go swimming with this friend. <laughs> and sometimes they can appear as unusually hairy humans. Let's get into the other cryptids here. Maybe a little Bigfoot action. But they lurk in the water and jump out at unsuspecting travelers and crush them to death using a vice-like grip. Do they tickle them at all? No, that's only in Russia. Where tickling is terrible. How dare you? They can also summon floods. Okay. So they could just drown you any way they want. So you're just, you're dead. You're dead. If you encounter (laughs) a Kelpie, like one way or another, this is a Blondie song waiting to happen. They're going to get you, get you, get you. There are some other unusual features. Their tails entering water sound like thunder. And they will sometimes howl or wail to warn people of an approaching storm. Don't know why they do that. Usually they're the ones causing it. And they're oftentimes going to eat you. So I'm not sure what the warning is for. That's the one nice Kelpie. That's the pescatarian Kelpie. Yeah. Then there are others who may imitate the cry of a drowning person in order to lure people into the water. Oh, that's, that's creepy. creepy. Yeah. yeah. But there is one way that you might not be dead should What's you that? encounter a Kelpie. How can we survive this? You need to get their bridle. Yes, the bridle. See, you can have a Kelpie. You can have a pet Kelpie if you can have a bridle. We just need to find uh, someone that can get us a bridle. If you have a Kelpie bridle, please call us because I want a singing pony more than you know. I will put videos of it on YouTube. That you can sick on your enemies. Okay, I really need one of these things. Like, I'm beginning to see my pathway to success. <laughs> so anyone that can get hold of a Kelpie's bridle will have command over it and any other Kelpie. A captive Kelpie is said to have the strength of at least 10 horses and the stamina of many more. And they are very highly prized. Now, it's rumored that the McGregor clan have a Kelpie's bridle that's been passed down through the generations. And it's said to have come from an ancestor who took it from a Kelpie from Loch Schloch. So that is so entrenched that in 1833, an article was printed, The Death of a Warlock, about Gregor McGregor, <laughs> alias Willocks the Warlock. Among his possessions, he had a piece of yellow metal resembling a horse's bridle. 
which in the days of yore were sported by a mischievous water kelpie who haunted the banks of Loch Ness. So that's not the only physical evidence we have of kelpies? Who has a kelpie? (laughs) No one has a kelpie. We have a kelpie footprint. Shut up. Ah, definitely. At the grounds of Vane Castle in Angus, there's a hoof-shaped imprint in sandstone near the river. It is said that in the early morning or at dusk, if you are still and you listen carefully enough, you might just catch the mournful song floating along the gently flowing current. Now, it's said that the Angus town folk worked their kelpies hard. We're super strong. The church at St. Vigian's and the Laird's house at Morphy were supposedly built by kelpies controlled by magic bridles. And that is why the kelpies left their mark in stone. Kelpies were creatures of comfort. They also were apparently very good at building things, and so there's a lake in the highland that never freezes over because a Kelpie has built a fireplace at the bottom. They are so industrious. They are. And some of our earliest evidence of Kelpies dates from between the 6th and 9th century, and it is on the Pictish stones, and it's been dubbed the Pictish Beast. So it's around when St. Columba was messing around there with the Picts. Right. Now, there are other tales of other water horses in various mythologies in the British Isles. The Orkney have the Nuggle, because the Orkney Isles have the best folklore. Selkies and Nuggles. Nuggles make my heart happy. Like, it's just that that word exists and is a thing. In Shetland, it's the Shupulti. And on the Isle of Man, there's the Kabul Ushti. And the Welsh folklore, there are tales of the Kefeldwar. Now, the water horse is not the same thing as the Kelpie. This is the Lake Loch, etc. version. And it's referred to as the Each Usage. And it's meaner even than the Kelpie. Yes. Tail would tell you that. A fish tail? A horse tail? A pony tail. So their name does translate directly to water horse. They're said to live in the highlands and appear physically larger than most horses. If you mount this one, you're going to stick to its back. If it smells water. So you're safe as long as it's on land and away from water. But the second the thing smells water, its skin becomes sticky and it's going to take you under the water. And when it takes you under the water, you'll be drowned. Once you're drowned, your corpse will be ripped apart and you will be devoured. However, the liver will always float to the surface. What? They don't like liver? They don't like liver. There's Scots in their livers. There's no way it was still good anyway. (laughs) Ah, You sound positively Australian. Let me drink that one. That'll make sense later. (laughs) So for this reason, people in the Highlands were often wary of lone animals or strangers when they were encountered along the water's edge. Yeah. So if you want to be left alone, just go stand by yourself by some water. There you go. Put some weeds in your hair. (laughs) Peace and quiet, finally. (laughs) And you'll be left alone. The Aberdeen Weekly Journal wrote on Wednesday, the 11th of June, 1879, the Kelpie has been in the habit of appearing as a beautiful (laughs) black horse. No sooner had the wary, unsuspected victim seated himself on the saddle than away darted the horse with more than the speed of a hurricane and plunged into the deepest part of Loch Ness, and the rider was never seen again. So this is written down as a factual report in 1879. So really, some of the main differences we can see is that this thing is bigger, meaner. Doesn't like liver. And also this whole smelling water thing seems to be unique to the lake one. Like the Kelpie, it's usually a male if it appears in human form. It can also appear as a boy or a ring or even a a tuft of wool. So anything. Really anything. Anything that fits the narrative. Right. Whatever we need it to be for the purposes of the story. They also eat cattle and sheep. So when cattle and sheep would go missing. That damn water horse. 
A story from More West Highland Tales by McKay tells of how a blacksmith's daughter from Brassai fell victim to a water horse. Now, the blacksmith, her father, was determined to take his revenge, so he and his son set to work in their forge manufacturing a set of huge iron hooks, taking these down to the lock where the beast lived. They roasted a sheep while heating the hooks in the fire until they were red hot. As evening fell, the smell of roast mutton drifted across the lock, and a thick gray mist arose. And from out of the mist, the water horse appeared from the depths and attempted to steal the roasting meat. But the blacksmith and his son attacked the creature by sticking the red-hot hooks into its flesh, and after the struggle, they managed to kill it. When dawn broke, all that was left of the water horse was a thick sludge on the ground. So they killed it. They killed one of them. They caught some sludge. <laughs> they caught some sludge. Now, some people think that the water horse is a spirit that guards a watery path to the afterlife where our ancestors live on. It is tasked with testing a person's worth. If it does not kill you, then you are judged worthy and carried to the underworld to join your forefathers. Well, that's a much nicer story than it's hungry. It is. And I guess that the tell would be your liver's not there. Like, you disappear and there's no liver? (laughs) I have a feeling they're just different stories. I feel like there should be a way to determine whether or not that person went to the afterlife or got eaten. Is that wanting too much? Depends on if you liked them or not, where they went. (laughs) Fair. Okay, moving on. Now, it can be subdued by putting a cow shackle around its neck or a cap on its head, which is... Any cap. Fabulous. The top hat? Just a horse with a hat. It's fancy. I love it. And if that makes it behave itself, I've got hats. <laughs> Let's get a fedora on a Kelpie, and you've got a singing, evil, strong horse. He's basically Bruno Mars. <laughs> but it has to stay on. If it loses the cap or if it loses the cow shackle, you're fucked. So a party hat, a little elastic band. <laughs> An elastic band. There Perfect. we go. But as long as that stays on, it could be kept safely as a farm horse. Now, in 1870, the residents of Skye were so convinced that Loch Nan de Brocken housed a water horse that the local lord offered that the loch be trawled. John McRae witnessed the attempt to find the monster. You may be sure that the people was terrified. It was certain that the water horse was there. So, Lord McDaniels said he would dredge the loch and trawl it for the monster. Well, he got all his gillies and gamekeepers out one day with a big net and they started walking opposite sides of the lock and dragging the net after them. I saw the thing myself. I was a boy going to school. We got a holiday that day. Well, we were watching carefully when the net got stuck, and all the gillies got the fear of the death on them, and they just dropped the net and ran back from the lock. I mind the day fine. A while after, they commenced again, and after a while, the net came away on a sudden. Well, then they pulled it in like afraid and all the time, what would be in the net? Is it a pike you call them long things? McRae inquired, demonstrating an approximate length from the tip of the forefinger to his left hand by placing it, his right hand sideways on his arm. Pike, I think you call them anyway, he concluded. There's nothing in the net at the finish but some mud and two small pikes. So they caught a bunch of tiny fish. They did. Wonderful. He saw the thing himself. Ah, I got away then. Did. <sighs> Slippery. Very slippery, unless they're very sticky. Sticky and slippery. Slippery. It's confusing. Should you want to find a Kelpie after all this? I have my party hat ready. You need a party hat, a Pope phone, some Catholic bells, 
That's what's and whiskey. That's what's hidden in the Vatican vaults. Kelpie bridles. Party hats. But in all seriousness, you can say a rhyme. Okay. And it'll call Kelpie. Um, and you can also perform a little blood offering. Of course. A bit of blood on a leaf placed on the water, along with calling Kelpie, I bid thee forth. And that will summon a Kelpie to your presence. This is such a bad idea. Don't do that. Don't trust those fairy websites. Oh, no, it's totally the fairy websites that gave me this information. Everyone else is like, stay the fuck away from, from Kelpies. And then a couple of people who were like, I'm a fairy, were like, and I can call a Kelpie, and they're my friend. And I'm like, okay, you seem to know more than I do. I will cite my sources. But also offer a word of caution. Now, some say that Kelpies can grant you powers and or wishes. Cool. But it's very like... Be careful what you wish for. They demand a steep price, et cetera, et cetera. So they grant wishes, eat everything but liver, turn into jellyfish, and wear party hats. That's what you need to know about Kelpies. <laughs> They're not your friend. So while in that article they were talking about this generations-old story of monsters in the lock, most likely referring to this kind of thing. Kelpies, water horses... And maybe that water bull that someone mentioned one time. And just kind of misconstruing things. Just, you know, twisting it a little. I don't think that it's a big stretch because they're like, people have talked about there being shit in that lake for a while. And it didn't have to be called the Loch Ness Monster. It was just the monster in Loch Ness. But the real craze for the Loch Ness Monster all started in 1933. So on August 4th of 1933, the Inverness Courier published a letter from a Londoner George Spicer. I saw the nearest approach to a dragon, a prehistoric animal that I've ever seen in my life. It crossed my road about 50 yards ahead and appeared to be carrying a small lamb or animal of some kind. It seemed to have a long neck which moved up and down in the manner of a scenic railway and the body was fairly big with a high back. So this got all the press and everyone got very excited about it. In the Daily News, scores of watchers in the past few weeks declare that they have seen a beast swimming with terrific speed. It has a black back with a pronounced hump, a neck seven feet long, and eyes like motor car lamps. Its total length is 30 feet. Some people consider it a prehistoric animal released from subterranean caverns by blasting operations. Others say it has strayed into the lakes from the North Sea. The Loch Ness has a sinister reputation. It never gives up. It's dead. We went on to say that divers have reported that gloomy caverns stretch into infinity, like great cathedrals. And residents want the Scottish Fishery Board to investigate. Okay, and then the story reached Australia. And apparently, Australians think all Scottish people are drunk all the time and don't care for them very much. And we get some very colorful reporting. Although we are told it does not desire to molest humanity and seems timid, the chances are that it chased the Scotsman home to his front gate, only to be scared away by the bagpipes and the perfume of haggis, palpitating from the breath of the Scot. Damn, Australia. (laughs) There's more. Haggis is gross. (laughs) I've tried it. Fair. Fair. I've tried it. So one man said that he saw it when he was younger and that it was pale yellow. Hmm. And the Australian paper responds, pale yellow. Now, here's a man who tries to describe that the monster looked like 20 years ago. He says it was like a camel, pale yellow. He doesn't even know what a camel looks like. Whiskey is pale yellow. So are canaries. 
Mr. McGrewer was bird nesting. It was probably a canary he saw. The monster might have been a camel, but it wasn't a Scotsman. A camel can go without a drink for seven days, but a Scotsman can't. Oh. <laughs> Dude. I had no idea there was so much beef. Like, I don't know what their deal was. I didn't know Australians were known for being, like, super sober people. <laughs> I did know they were known for being snarky. That's why we love them. I know. <laughs> So another article is published around the same time. If the people of Great Glen are losing their railway, they are getting a certain amount of diversion out of the controversy in the South as to the existence or otherwise of a monster in Loch Ness. One party solemnly trailed the loch the other day with a leg of mutton as a ball, and another with a small regard for local feeling spent last Sunday keeping watch along the shores of the loch. Of course, they saw nothing. The keeper of the Natural History Department of the Royal Scottish Museum suggests the animal scene was probably nothing more than a white whale. How dull. How dull. Have a drink, man. So also, f- former German U-boat commander wrote to a Berlin newspaper claiming that after sinking the British steamer the Iberian off the coast of Scotland in June of 1915, he and his officers saw a creature described as a 50-foot crocodile with four webbed feet flung into the air by an explosion and crashed back into the water, sinking from view. So this kept getting written up in papers. It was insanely popular. You had people trolling the water with mutton. <laughs> you had hundreds of Boy Scouts and outdoorsmen venturing out in small boats, walking along the shores, setting up deck chairs and just waiting. With their parasols and fiddles, no doubt. Exactly. The London Sunday Times cited a proposal to protect the Loch Ness Monster by an act of parliament, asking why has nobody ever thought of this before? Hey, when that was written up in the Australian paper, they're like, uh, clearly they don't know that we protect all our mythical beasts. <laughs> <laughs> like throwing serious shade. Like kangaroos. And they were like listing fictional beasts. <laughs> like kangaroos. Exactly. So by October of that year, several London newspapers had sent correspondence to Scotland and radio programs were being interrupted to bring listeners the latest news from the lock. Now, in December of 1933, the Daily Mail launched a special investigation and hired big game hunter Marmaduke Weatherall. Shut up. Best name ever. So he goes straight up to Scotland. He is going to track down this ferocious beast. And it's going to be published in the reputable Daily Mail. Almost immediately, he found a fresh track. What? And he took a cast of it. Go, Marmaduke Weatherell. He spoke to the BBC. You may imagine my great surprise when on a small patch of loose earth, I found fresh spore or footprints about nine inches wide of a four-toed animal. Its prints were very much like those of a hippo. Well, I guess Marmaduke would know. He is a big game hunter, after all. Yeah, kind of. He's more an actor. (laughs) Oh. Oh, no. I knew the name was too good to be true. (laughs) So this piece was produced by Peter Fleming. Is he any relation to, I don't know, Ian Fleming? He's his brother. Okay. Well, we know imagination runs in that family. (laughs) Well, he described Wetherell and his crew as transparent rogues. (laughs) (laughs) And Wetherell is a dense... Fruity, pachydermatous man in pepper and salt tweeds. He is too good to be true. You thought the Australians could drop a burn. <laughs> that is shade. That is British shade. He's even commenting on the clothes. 
So they took the cask and sent it to the Natural History Museum in London for study. And they thought it kind of looked like a hippo print, too. Well, see, he knew. And so they went to the zoo. Mm -hmm. And they cast a live hippo print to compare it to. Oh, no. And he said, we're unable to find any significant difference between these impressions and those made by the foot of a hippo. Except that this Loch Ness Monster cast, they felt, was from a dry-mounted specimen. (laughs) So a taxidermied hippo. Oh my god, Jacob, now I'm having visions of this guy, like, you know how, you do, you do because your uncle had them. Yeah. You know how people turn, like, elephant feet into end tables mm-hmm. and stuff like that? Like, I'm picturing him with fine home furnishing off the shore of the lake, like, in his salt and pepper tweeds, making <laughs> fake messy chests. Maybe wearing them. Like God willing, some... and the creek don't rise. Like, very uh, like potato sack, right? Yes. <laughs> but, I mean, like, no, that's too good to be true. Well, he could not account for this craziness. And, and he just said, oh, well, the monster's just a seal and left. Clearly. <laughs> but in 1999, it came out that he used a silver cigarette ashtray mounted in a hippo's foot. Oh my god, it was not too good to be true. It was not! (laughs) And the ashtray still existed and was owned by Wetherell's grandson, Peter. Oh, was he named for Peter Fleming, who loved him so much? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my stars and garters. That is an amazing story. So we have all that proof. (laughs) Let's get to some more proof. There's the first photo is the Hugh Gray photograph. Came out in November 1933. It's just like a blur. <laughs> it's ridiculous. That's your own list. And he took the photo and didn't develop the film until three weeks later. But the photo, the photo of Nessie. Like the one you see when you Google Loch Ness Monster yes. photo. Like this it, is the Patterson-Gimlin yes. footage of... Oh no, there's something for that too, don't you? Oh, worry? I'm sorry. <laughs> Excuse me. No, this is, is the pick. And it's called the Surgeon Photograph. So it was published in the Daily Mail. Goodness gracious, they are all over this story. April 21st of 1934. It was sold to the Daily Mail by a London physician named R. Kenneth Wilson. So that's why it's called the Surgeon. Exactly. Exactly, because he was anonymous. So an anonymous surgeon, because we have to use your credentials, because you being a doctor makes you seem more sane. Exactly. Clearly they hadn't met you. Oh, that's not nice. Now he said that he had taken the picture when he noticed a commotion in the water as he was driving up from London to photograph birds with a friend near Inverness. Now, few believed that such a respected doctor could be party to deception. Why, it's important that he's an anonymous surgeon. Not just an anonymous man. <laughs> now, Roy Chapman Andrews. So he's the adventuresome explorer. Yeah, we talked about him on our Indiana Jones episode. He said, I got a copy of the original from the Times, and it showed just what I expected. The dorsal fin of a killer whale. Which is no easier to explain, is it? Do they have orca in the lock? We'll get there. Okay. <laughs> but no, I mean, that's it's not that's not the explanation, but it's just fun that he's just throwing shade. <laughs> So much shade in this, like, adventurer community. So this was published in 1934. Now, in 1975, the Sunday Telegraph printed this short little article that was lost to time forever until somebody dug it up with Ian Wetherell. Okay, now, his name's Ian and his son's name's Peter. He is naming them after the Flemings. so. I don't know. And he is the 63-year-old son of Marmaduke. 
So my father said, all right, we'll give them their monster. I remember that we drove up to Scotland. We found an inlet where the tiny ripples would look like full-size waves out of the lock and with actual scenery in the background. He says they built a small model monster around a toy submarine, (laughs) put it out in the lake, and took a few pictures. The photos were handed off to a friend, a local OBGYN, who submitted it to the paper. So Marmaduke was not content with his hippo tromping. He was he was angry that he'd been called out on it. So he said, we're going to make them all look silly. Give me a toy submarine. Come on, Ian. We're making a monster. Exactly. Fun. I like him. <laughs> and even more recently, they tracked down his stepson, who confirmed that, saying, it's not a genuine photograph. It's a load of cod swallop and always has been. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it doesn't sound nice. Can't be good. And so now, you know, you can see a less cropped version of the photo. And there you can see a lot more of the background and it looks tiny. A diminutive monster. But it was not an orca either. Oh, no. No, it was completely a hoax. So do you think that's true? You believe that it was definitely the toy submarine? His son said it was. Both, like the stepson and the son. And the son. So we're, I I feel comfortable saying that is. Oh, yeah, it's completely debunked. That photo is done. But there's more proof, don't worry. Before we get there. So in 1934, there was another big expedition. Mounted by insurance magnate Sir Edward Mountain. He took 20 unemployed men and enrolled them as, quote, watchers for the monster. Gave them two pounds a week. And set them just all along, strategically along the lock to take photographs. And several sightings and photos were taken, most attributable to boat wakes. So there was an article printed up while they were finishing up the expedition. That monster, it pops up again. Yes, there is a Loch Ness monster. If you accept the findings of Sir Edward Mountain, the reported presence of the mysterious marine animal in the Scottish lake had piqued the public curiosity for many months, along with the curiosity of Sir Edward a leading businessman. Determined to get to the bottom of the thing, he organized a party of 20 watchers. After peering at the lake for a month, they report that beyond doubt, Loch Ness harbors some unidentifiable monster. Sir Edward's watchers agree that the creature has a relatively small head and shows two or three humps when near the surface and moves with such remarkable speed through the big wash. During the month, the patient observers said they were rewarded 21 times by glimpses of the animal, but they are not yet fully satisfied and will continue their lookout for another week, hoping to get good photographs. So on September 15th, the expedition's leader, Captain James Fraser, got a photo near Urquhart Castle. Now, sadly, the photo has been lost to time. <clears throat> but it was shown to scientists at the time who did feel it was a real live animal what was it a seal it's always a seal marmaduke said it was a seal too in his huff it was a huff so people started offering money to capture photos or evidence or actually capture the loch ness monster for display five thousand pounds was offered from the u.s by dr reed blair who's director of the new york zoological park who said this was an opportunity for an ambitious young man, provided they could produce the monster alive, healthy, and at least 40 feet long. I was reading one article. It's like, it's unknown whether Blair would have turned his nose up at a 39 and a half foot monster. Hard to say. And then 
a British circus offered a reward of 20,000 pounds for the capture of the beast. So this was printed in the Salt Lake Tribune on January 22nd of 1934. Monsters fame growing. Scotland's Loch Ness Monster is having been reported seen again by M. Gilly, a head gamekeeper, and it's more sought after than ever. Much amusement has been caused in Inverness and in the Loch Ness district by offers of money by a newspaper and by a London circus proprietor for the capture of the monster. The circus proprietor, Bertram Mills, is said to have offered $100,000 to anyone who captures the monster a lot and delivers it before the close of the circus in 1934. It is also the scenario for a film to be produced around Loch Ness Monster, and is now being prepared by authors Miss Billy Bristow and Charles Bennett. Two airplanes and a yacht are being brought into service in the quest for further information about the beast. So this is another article on the subject. The suggestion for the capture of the Loch Ness Monster increased week to week. We are now invited to catch by trawler, to study it by aircraft, to drop an asphyxiating bomb upon it, to fix a gird at the end of the lock so it cannot escape. Greatest of all would be the glory of an angler who could catch it with a leg of mutton or a dead dog. How many people were just like trolling the leg with mutton? Apparently (laughs) quite a few. Poor sheep. But he goes on to note, quite appropriately, in the week of prodigies, the Komodo dragons, the zoo, have had their claws cut and stood the operation well. The Loch Ness Monster, when it gets into the aquarium, may at least be assured that the most careful manicuring with special attention to those numerous dorsal vertebra in which, according to all accounts, it is so rich. And then we have a report on May 11th, of 1934, from Pennsylvania. Scottish people would not sell Big Sea Monster. New Yorker offers $25,000 for capture of Loch Ness Sea Serpent. Inverness, Scotland, May 11th. What? Sell the famous Loch Ness Monster to America? The villagers who dwell along the shores of Loch Ness first blinked their eyes, then grew indignant on the day that director Dr. W. Blair of the Bronx Zoo in New York offered $25,000 to any man who would capture the beast and transport it to the United States. No more than we would sell His Majesty King George himself, was one angry comment. The Loch Ness Monster, Americans may well know, is a distinctly home-born product, some people say, of Scottish imagination, and if captured will never be allowed to leave British shores. All sorts of royal scientific societies, all sorts of mass meetings would raise such a hullabaloo that no government that permitted the sale would survive 24 hours. There has been one previous offer to buy the strange creature with a periscope-like head, and it was made by Englishmen. Bertram Mills offered $100,000 for delivery alive in London, but the offer expired on January 25th with no takers. Oh, that's too bad. So the Bertram Mills Circus is the equivalent to... Ringling Brothers Circus. Oh, it is yeah. the big circus in the UK. We have talked a lot about that circus, actually. I am a minor expert in it for a week, <laughs> or I was. Uh, we did an audio dye museum about his son, Cyril Mills, which, fun story, he was a spy master and a circus proprietor. It's good. <laughs> but you may notice the timing of his offer. It was in the season of the Loch Ness Monster craze, right? Like it expired at the end of the 1934 circus season. Right. Which was on January 25th. So it would have been through 1933 that this offer stood. So eventually, in the modern era, post-internet, etc., a man named Neil Clark had a strange theory. What's that? He was a curator of paleontology 
at a museum in Glasgow, and he saw striking similarities between descriptions of Nessie and what an Indian elephant looks like while it's swimming. What are you saying? So he says, perhaps not coincidentally, a traveling circus featuring elephants passed by the lake around the time that that reward was offered. Which they did. When the monster sightings were so prevalent. Hmm. So he speculates that people who were unaccustomed to seeing swimming elephants. Which most people aren't. (laughs) Most people in Scotland. Yeah. (laughs) Didn't know that most of the animal would be submerged. And so only the thick trunk and a couple of humps, like the head and maybe the back. Yeah. Would be visible if the elephant were swimming. Are you telling me? And so he decided (laughs) that naturally what people had seen was an elephant. Well, I mean, the George Spicer story has him walking on the road in front of him. Maybe that dude just had too much whiskey. I mean, that's what the Australians think. That's probably true. But let's keep this in mind as we examine the fact that this circus proprietor offered a $100,000 reward, which would be in the millions millions today to get his hands on a live Loch Ness monster. Did he have those millions? Why did he feel so safe offering this reward? Could it be? Could it be? That he was logical. That he was logical or that he knew that his elephants were the monster. It's a great theory. I love this theory. It makes me so happy. It will be noted that after Bertram's death in 1938, sightings dropped precipitously. And there was also something else important going on around that time. World War II. Okay, fine. So you don't think it's an elephant? I'm sorry. I'm saying that the, the sightings falling off is not an important fact. Do you think it was an elephant? I think that it is a very good theory that goes in the maybe pile. There's no certain pile. It's maybe or ridiculous. <laughs> it's one of the two. So it can be a hippo, but it can't be an elephant. It can, the footprint can be a hippo ashtray. Fine. That's definitive. So I guess there's a definitive pile. Hippo (laughs) silver ashtray. I'll have a few more definitives, I guess. Fine. Okay, so what were you saying about the little war thing? So the big craze was in those few year period from 1933, kind of to, you know, I mean, it was really 33, 34 that were huge. Mm-hmm. And but interest stayed, you know, until there were more important things to do. Wars. Like defeat the Nazis. Yeah. But then once we were done defeating the Nazis, we could mm-hmm. get back to our, mm-hmm. our monster hunt. Yeah. Snipe hunts. Snipe hunt. So in the nineteen fifties, a local doctor named Constance White began collecting eyewitness accounts along with sketches of what people had seen in the lock. And he finally published them in a nineteen fifty seven book entitled more than a legend. Noting that many of oh, her, I'm sorry, her, I'm so sexist, that many of her friends had been subjected to ridicule and contempt. White said her goal in writing the book was the vindication of many people of integrity who had reported honestly what they had seen in Loch Ness. And so her book inspired a new generation of monster hunters. Her book hit at a time where there were no major wars going on. <laughs> For half a minute. So Nessie does have, as I said, its own version of the Patterson-Gimlin film. Patterson-Gimlin is the Bigfoot footage. The Bigfoot footage. The big footage, one might say. You could. You could. Of a lady Bigfoot, they've decided. 
through thorough analysis on YouTube that we watched when we were working on that episode. And the Nat Geo documentary that was ridiculous. Equivalent. That purports to be the most authentic, amazing proof of Bigfoot ever to exist in the world. So that one is even actually, believe, believe it or not, clearer than this film as the Tim Dinsdale film. It was shot in 1960 in black and white and shows something on the surface of the lake. So Dinsdale was an engineer who had become obsessed with Nessie, all because of a dream. One night in 1959, he was reading a magazine article on the Loch Ness Monster about Constant White's reporting. And he said, I kept turning the story over in my mind. And late that night in bed, fitfully asleep, I dreamt I walked the steep jutting shores of the loch and peered down at inky waters, searching for the monster, waiting for it to burst from depths just as I had read. And as the wan light of dawn filtered through the curtains, I awoke and knew that the imaginary search, beginning so clearly in my dream, had grown into fact. What did the search the dream he had to go he okay. it was like a calling from the monster i don't know the kelpie song he heard the kelpie <gasps> yes, song you're right he did don't touch it <laughs> so he decided to drive out to loch ness and film it himself almost immediately after arriving he saw it two sinuous gray humps breaking the surface with seven or eight feet of clear water between each amazing then you realize it was a floating log. Maybe it was that enchanted animal impaling stick. Maybe so. Then on the fourth day, two long black shadows or shapes rising and falling in the water. What was that? Well, after reviewing footage, he thought it was probably just waves. This poor guy is on an emotional roller coaster ride. <laughs> but then, on his last day there, I saw an object on the surface about two thirds of the way across the lock started filming i could see the monster through the optical camera sight as it swam away across the lock it changed course leaving a glassy zigzag wake and then it slowly began to submerge okay we're gonna pause here and i'm gonna watch this because i've got to see it all right we pulled it up what is it (laughs) oh jacob hmm i think it's a seal it's it it's a monster i think it's a seal it's a boat it's a boat. Look at it. Look at the wake. Well, I can't see. Oh. Oh, now. Look at it turn. <laughs> oh, I saw it turn. Oh, I saw it turn. It's 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 a it's a boat. It's a boat. I feel like I can see a man in the boat. So this footage launched him into the spotlight. Book deals, interviews, lecture tours. He was even on the Johnny Carson show in 1972. Come on down. So in 1966, the Royal Air Force photographic experts from the Joint Reconnaissance Intelligence Center did study the film, and they felt it was a powerboat. I feel they are correct. But, of course, they said they couldn't rule anything out. God damn them and their thoroughness. This is exactly the reason we still have aliens. Exactly. You can't say, well, it's 100% not a monster. (laughs) Like, see? So you're telling me I have a chance. <laughs> We're 99.9% sure. So there's a chance. There's, what you're saying is there's a chance, yes. Now, even with that, of course, Tinsdale kept seeing Nessie. In 1971, he said, I glanced to starboard and instantly recognized a shape I had seen often in a photograph. The famous surgeon photograph. 
a toy submarine <laughs> with a neck. Yes. Of 1934. But it was alive and muscular. Incredulous, I stood for a moment without moving. All I could do was stare. Then I saw the neck-like object whip back underwater, only to reappear briefly. Then go down in a boil of white foam. There was a battery of five cameras within inches of my right hand, but I made no move toward them. Was it singing again? <laughs> Must have been. God, in like really, why? Why not grab one of the five cameras? Your whole thing is to get proof. He, and he also just has some crazy ideas about it. Like, I mean, he's like called to it mm. in a way. He, so it's a spirit animal. He felt like there was a strange malevolent force at work on the lock. Why? I thought it was like calling him to it. Like, and he went anyway? I don't know. <laughs> I need to talk to this fella. Get him Do on the phone. Sure. Get him on the phone. Get the papal phone. I'm sure the Pope can get him in the Is he alive? I need to talk to him. Get the Ouija board. So with this resurgence of excitement about the Loch Ness Monster, in the span of a decade beginning in 1958, four separate expeditions were launched. First by the BBC, then by three respected British universities, Oxford, Cambridge, and the University of Birmingham. In 1962, the Loch Ness Phenomenon Investigation Bureau formed, and that included the author Constance White, and an MP, David James. Now, David James had his background of naval service and Antarctic exploration to add to these investigations. Now, he, in some of his early expeditions, he did rock blasting no. to simulate the 1930s and the last of the wartime searchlights probing for nocturnal activity. And he would try to get all of these kind of reputable people to examine the evidence. He was trying to make this more credible. And he'd get zoologists and military photographic people to examine things, try to get some kind of credence to, th- to it. For the next 10 years, they mounted an intensive surface surveillance using telephoto cinema cameras to try to repeat that classic photograph on good quality film. Might I suggest a yellow submarine? It was fucking Ringo. There lived a man. It's always Ringo. Who sailed the sea. And he told us... I have a monster made of yellow submarines. (laughs) This explains everything. So they did collect tons of photos and sighting reports, but no good evidence. But they had a thorough investigation. Yeah. Like, that's the thing that's always gotten me about this is like, there is a limited amount of area to study. But it is a massive lake and it is almost a thousand feet deep. But it's not Bigfoot. Which you could know, be anywhere. It could be anywhere. It's not aliens that can literally fly out of our solar system but if like, you look at them like crossways. We keep, like we keep hinting at, people say, you know, it could go stay in these like subterranean caves. Those cathedrals. Or those might, infinite yes, cathedrals. It might go through the river. It might have other ways of getting away, which makes just the search infinite. Ugh. So... <laughs> They, they really did do a lot of big scientific techniques. They had some little subs they deployed that people would build. And if only they had put a neck on them. I know. My favorite was in 1969, the Viper Fish, which had biopsy harpoons that was sponsored by the World Book. Encyclopedias. Yes. I My mother has a set of World Book encyclopedias. It could tell you all about the USSR. <laughs> I lost the first M. <laughs> You'll never have any information about mon- mammals. <laughs> no mammals. 
Magellan lost forever. Well, that's just true. A few made it back. (laughs) A few. Now, you had the reputable people searching, but then you also had the kind of more interesting people searching as well. The people who are like spiritually called to the malevolent forces of the dark inky lake and the wan light of dawn. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So one guy named Frank Serrell had been in the lock since 1969. He'd put in an estimated 20,000 hours of observation. He's almost an expert. But yeah, both from the lock side and his boat without finding anything. And he, this was like his whole life. He had like a little hut set up with kind of like a little mini museum. And it was like all he did. But then suddenly in 1972, he had a lucky streak of photographs. Some extreme close-ups. I have a feeling Mac Mulder is about to wander off the reservation. Now, people were kind of suspicious of this because it really did look like a plesiosaur. Like the dinosaur. Yeah. Like the extinct Jurassic fish reptile thing. It's not technically a dinosaur, but yeah, (laughs) yes. And it's when I kept... Let's, use, let's just use dinosaur and make it easy. It's not it, really. Like, kept shooting in the dark there for a second. Because it's like, none of this is technically accurate, but I know what I mean. So, what happened was some of his other Nessie hunters... And this is the interesting thing about other Loch Ness Monster hunters. Is they're always trying to disprove each other. They want to be the one that finds it. Like, Bigfoot people are always, like, supportive and, like... Mm-hmm. I don't like, know, just stuff, like, from watching videos No, there's a definite... Like t- this has been a shady bitch fest since it started. The, yeah. I mean, like, look at it. Like, it's seriously, like, the person hiring Marmaduke is, like, he is a charlatan. Yes. Like, it's not... It's never been nice. And there's a definite tone. When you go on forums and you go look for anything, like, fairies, for example... Yeah. You know, like, there's a definite tone. And there's a, like, your fairies are your fairies, and they mean right. what they mean to you. And Bigfoot people are like, wow, that's awesome. It's probably a different type of Bigfoot that's the skunk ape, or that's the, you know. Yeah, like, we're willing to take it and make it part of our lore. Nessie people are serious shade throwing. They're like, bitch. That is not Nessie. I know Nessie, and she don't do that. And in this case, they're like, bitch, you didn't take no photo. You just cut up a postcard of a dinosaur and pasted it on pictures and they're like that is so stupid no one would ever do that come on but that's what he did oh god (laughs) so he was called out by the other nessie hunters for doing this he had three different photos one showing a head and neck another a large single hump and a third a tail emerging from the water and they thought he had just cut up postcards (laughs) of dinosaurs the same dinosaur. It's all different parts, right? So he had one postcard. Of a, I think it was a Diplodocus. Some sort of sauropod. Like Brachiosaurus-like thing. And so this is a hotly debated topic in the Nessie community. I warn thee. I'm just going to tell it as I read it. I'm not taking a side. <laughs> so as reported, a scene between Nessie Hunter, Lee Frank, and, and Frank Cyril. I'm sorry. <coughs> Didn't know. Yes, yes. Where? Where was this reported? I mean, oh. <laughs> and in 1970, article in We, an American soft porn magazine. Awesome. Thank you. Continue. Sorry. Left that out. <laughs> so Frank asked if Cyril had ever added humps or fins to any of his photographs. Cyril began to shake and pulled out a knife. <laughs> Lee says that if Cyril's photos are genuine, he has nothing to shake about. Cyril lunges at Lee, slams him violently into a tree, and screams that he's going to throw him into the lock. 
where he will not be eaten by a plesiosaur. <laughs> now, eventually, they even like contacted his publisher and told him that it was all fake, and he lost a lot of credibility. Now, after he was exposed, things got hot. In 1973, he allegedly, allegedly, firebombed another Loch Ness Shut expedition. The- Shut up. At around 5.30 a.m., a small boat appeared just offshore and a bottle filled with petrol and ignited was hurled at the project's inflatable boats. No one was hurt. Like a Molotov cocktail kind of thing? Yeah. It's debatable. Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm like, I'm afraid to put this episode out now. No, like the other side, I'll just throw the other side there, is that they did it themselves. And framed him? Yes. No matter what's true. That's crazy. Crazy. Either side. I don't care which one's true. (laughs) Y'all need to chill the fuck out. You can all go play with your own dinosaurs, okay? They will all love you. The dinosaurs always escape, Jacob. Or maybe it was a Kelpie and you can all be eaten. Maybe the Kelpie firebombed them. (laughs) From their fireplace that they built in the bottom of the lock. Now in 1972, they finally found the body of Nessie. An eight-member team of scientists from Yorkshire Flamingo Park Zoo were in town to investigate the monster. As they were eating breakfast, the hotel manager came to them in a hurry and reported that they'd seen something, like a large hump, floating out in the lock. Get it! Yeah, so they dropped their baked beans or whatever British people eat. Haggis. It was haggis there in Scotland. They eat beans. I bet they eat haggis for breakfast <laughs> in Scotland. I'm, I'm sticking with it. Mutton. Mutton. <laughs> it was mutton. They didn't drop it. They grabbed it. <laughs> like, we're going to catch it. So they went out to investigate and found a dark object bobbing up and down in the waves about 30 yards offshore. So they went and grabbed the boat, went out there, and they returned with the body of Nessie. So news reporters rushed to the th- scene. A local resident said, I touched it. It put my hand in its mouth. It's real, all right. I thought it looked half bear, half seal, but it was green in color. With a horrific head like a bear and flat ears. I was shocked. What the fuck did they find? Reporters contacted the director of the Flamingo Park Zoo, Don Robinson. And he said... (laughs) It's so hard to take him seriously. I've always been skeptical about the Loch Ness Monster, but this is definitely a monster. No doubt about that. From the reports I've seen, no one has ever seen anything like it before. A fishy, scaly body with a massive head and a big protruding teeth. So the crew loaded the monster into their van and they were going to head back to the Yorkshire Flamingo Zoo. That name! (laughs) Now, we've talked several times about how the Scots do not want you to take the damn Loch Ness Monster. They would rather sell (laughs) King George himself, which fine. (laughs) They probably would. So the police heard of this, that they'd thrown Nessie in the van and were heading out. In the mystery machine. Yes. And they were furious. They were going to stop those meddling kids. Yes. So the scientist van was pulled over by a squadron of (laughs) police cars. Oh my God, where is this movie? Oh, it'd be so good. And so the monster was brought to Dunfermline for Scottish scientists to examine, because only Scottish scientists could understand this. So the next morning, April 1st, reports hit the papers. The son of Nessie has been found. The creature was examined by the curator of the Edinburgh Zoo, which is a big, world-famous zoo. Not like the Flamingo Park. I don't know about the Flamingo Park. It might be fantastic. I love flamingos. I do, too. What are they doing in that cold? I don't know. (laughs) 
And we all know that they're just secretly murderers. Why? Like Helena Blavatsky oh, said. Oh, oh, because she, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so the director kind of takes one look at it, kind of walks around it, pokes it, goes, nah. <laughs> it's a bull elephant seal. <laughs> it's a typical member of its species, but I've never known them to come near Great Britain. Their natural habitat is the South Atlantic, the Falkland Islands. I don't know how long it's been kept in a deep freeze, but this has obviously been done by some human hand. No. Now that human hand. Belonged to. John Shields, the Flamingo Park Zoo's education director. He was meddling with the kids. He had some friends that had gone on an expedition in the Falkland Islands. And they had brought a bull elephant seal back with them, and it died soon after arrival. So he called his buddies up, asked if he could borrow that frozen dead seal they had. He shaved off its whiskers, patted its cheeks with stones, and kept it frozen for a week before dumping the body in the lock when he knew the crew was going out there. So the crew did not know about this. (laughs) He then phoned in the tip to the hotel, and he timed it. For it all to fall on April 1st, April Fool's Day. John Shields, you are a hero. (laughs) Now, there have been many further searches, such as the Loch Ness Project did Operation Deep Scan in October of 1987, where they drew a sonar curtain along the lock with 20 boats equipped with low-range echo sounders and formed a slow-moving line that slowly just scanned the entire lake. Now, of course, they had a few that disappeared that were mysterious, but nothing was found. Definitively. (laughs) In 2015, there was debate over whether an image from Apple Maps featured the elusive monster. What was it? I don't know. (laughs) Uh. And now there's a Google Street View footage, or lock view, that people are hoping they might be able to find a new surgeon photo. Now, on July 2nd of 2003, Gerald McSorley... A Scottish pensioner, this is from the BBC, uh, (laughs) found a fossilized section of a plesiosaur vertebrae, which he, when he accidentally tripped and fell into the lock. (sighs) So Nessie enthusiasts speculated that the fossil might have come from an ancestor of the monster. This is the first time they're making this connection. Oh, no. Okay. They're thinking that they actually have proof of this. Oh, but upon further exam, revealed that the vertebrae was embedded in limestone, which is not found near Loch Ness. And the fossil showed signs of having recently been in a marine environment. In other words, it was planted. No! Probably by the people that were fighting. Maybe about, so. Uh, definitely their doings. But, like, obviously the fellow that was cutting up the pictures of the dinosaur was like it's a dinosaur like that's what his inkling was and now we've got people planting plesiosaur fossils a lot of people think that it is some sort of ancient extinct creature we're gonna keep saying dinosaur we know plesiosaurs are not dinosaurs just we know thank you (laughs) (laughs) so let's say it's not all a hoax (laughs) and go with it so lauren coleman famed cryptozoologist said that most American cryptozoologists reject the plesiosaur hypothesis. When you call anything a hypothesis, it sounds better. We realize that these extinct marine reptiles are extinct. 
and to promote or use them as candidates for lock monsters is done by mostly by quote true believers so he's using true believers as like a pejorative there which is weird (laughs) and also doesn't explain the other versions of nessie like this multi-humped sea serpent but no matter because it's still the most popular theory now in 1833 as far back as that naturalists began to suggest that surviving populations of prehistoric marine reptiles could explain sea serpents sure Why not? That's very missing link of them. Exactly. The idea of there being a lost land filled with prehistoric creatures and ancient civilizations was a really common literary device in the 1800s. And lots of writers took advantage of it. Now, of course, Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth, which was published in 1864. Who's responsible for so many conspiracy theories. So much. Now, his novel was basically a walking tour through prehistoric time, modeled on the earth before the deluge which we have talked about on a previous episode it was just kind of a book they just kind of set up this kind of like prehistoric world before the great flood (laughs) but like looking at kind of some of the scientific information that was out so particularly important to our present topic is in chapter 30 of jules verne's train to the center of the earth terrific saurian combat great title I know. Now, this is when they are crossing this great lake or sea. Lock. Yes, that is under the surface of the earth. Now, first person, (laughs) as many books were. I recollect once seeing in the Great Museum of Hamburg the skeleton of one of these wonderful saurians. It measured no less than 30 feet from the nose to the tail. Am I then an inhabitant of the earth of the present day, destined to find myself face to face With a representative of this antediluvian family? I can scarcely believe it is possible. I can hardly believe it's true. And yet these marks of powerful teeth upon this bar of iron. Now he's going along. They're going along in a little boat. To leeward is a turtle about 40 feet wide. And a serpent quite as long. With an enormous hideous head peering from out the waters. We remain still and dumb from utter horror. They advance upon us nearer and nearer. Our fate appears certain, fearful, and terrible. On one side, the mighty crocodile. On the other side, the giant sea serpent. The rest of the fearful crowd of marine prodigies have plunged beneath the briny waves and disappeared. The two hideous and ravenous monsters passed within fifty fathoms of the raft, and then made a rush of one another, their fury and rage preventing them from seeing us. Yes, it is so, the first of these hideous monsters has the snout of a porpoise, the head of a lizard, the teeth of a crocodile. And it is this that has deceived us. It is the most fearful of all antediluvian reptiles, the world-renowned Ichthyosaurus, our great fish lizard. The other is a monstrous serpent concealed under the hard vaulted shell of the turtle, the terrible enemy of its fearful rival, the Plesiosaurus, our sea crocodile. The mighty Plesiosaurus, a serpent with a cylindrical tongue with a short, stumpy tail, with fins like the bank of oars in a Roman galley. Its whole body covered by a carapace or shell, and its neck, as flexible as that of a swan, rose more than thirty feet above the waves, a tower of animated flesh. These animals attacked one another with inconceivable fury. Such a combat was never seen before by mortal eyes, and to us who did see it, 
It appeared more like the phantasmagoric creation of a dream than anything else. The terrible monster is now wounded unto death. I can see nothing now of his enormous body. All that could be distinguished was his serpent-like neck, which he twisted and curled in all the agonies of death. Now he struck the waters with it, as if it had been a gigantic whip, and then again wriggled like a worm, cut in two. As for the ichthyosaurus, has he gone down to his mighty cavern under the sea to rest, or will he reappear to destroy us? Oh, Jules Verne. So all of these ideas are when kind of these new dinosaurs, these you know terrible mm-hmm. lizards. Extinct marine reptiles. These saurians are coming into light. Even the narrator says, I saw these massive skeletons in a museum. I couldn't even believe it then. And now here they are. Alive and well. I will say, before we continue, if you've not Googled Jules Verne's tomb, you should do so. It's more sci-fi than you can handle in a graveyard. (laughs) It's a man bursting out of his tomb in marble. Amazing. But there's a reason that people think that plesiosaurs might exist in this area. They did. Ish. Ish. (laughs) We don't know how far they traveled, how far away they roamed. So how do we know that the British Isles ever saw a plesiosaur? Or an ichthyosaur. How do we know that? Well, the Loch Ness Monster. (laughs) That's not the answer. The answer is an 11-year-old girl. What? (laughs) Okay. So, I'd like to take this opportunity to tell you about my daughter's current hero. Apparently, our nearly four-year-old's favorite in the whole world. (laughs) Mary Anning. So, rumor has it that the tongue twister that I'm not going to be able to say correctly... She sells seashells by the seashore. Can't say it. That is based on Mary Anning. She was born in 1799 in Lyme Regis, Dorset, England. Now, this turned out to be a very lucky location for such a woman to be born because the English Channel was nearby and the cliffs in the area were full of Jurassic-era fossils. And this would shape the course of Mary's life and the course of our understanding of prehistoric life. And when she was young, just about 15 months old, she was taken into town by some neighbors. And they had gone to see a traveling circus. Now, this is a proper circus. A proper, like, with horses. Horses that go in circles. Circus. Get it? Anyway. And while they were watching the show, they were taking shelter under a nearby tree when it was struck by lightning. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> the tree was struck by lightning. Holy cow. Now, three other people under that tree died. But Mary didn't? Mary didn't. Her survival was dubbed a miracle by the doctor that examined her. And her family would always credit... Her intellect and her curiosity and her perceptive nature to this lightning strike. It's definitely the only way a woman could be this smart. <laughs> In 1799? Fair. But maybe it shook something loose. <laughs> Who knows? Now, her parents were just regular old working folks. Richard, her father, was a cabinet maker, and his wife, Molly, had 10 children. However, only two survived to maturity. Mary, who was actually named for an older sibling who had also been Mary, who died in a fire, and her brother Joseph. In another stroke of good luck, uh, the family belonged to a Congregationalist or a dissenting church. They emphasized the importance of education for boys as well as girls. Wow. So they made an effort to make sure that all their parishioners could read and write, and Mary received her education through this church. And they believed that education was important for the rich and for the poor. Crazy. I know. Now, her family pastor actually wrote an article encouraging members of his church to study geology to learn more about how the world was really created. 
That's fantastic. Mary had a copy of the book that it was published in, and it was like one of her most treasured possessions. <laughs> now, it was not uncommon for people in Lyme to sell curios to tourists. It had become a resort town because traveling to the continent was dangerous because, you know... Napoleonic Wars? Well, yeah, that. And the blood of angry men, the dark of ages past, the world about to dawn, the night that ends at last. The Miserable. Yeah, the French Revolution. Oh, whatever. Same thing. Yeah. Um, That was happening. And also, it was just generally the 19th century, and nowhere was safe. Now, people in Lyme found themselves the victim of food shortages, and her father actually helped organize protest against food shortages at the time. So she's in a very progressive group of people. Their town had become sort of a resort town. And so in order to supplement his income as a cabinet maker, her father would collect seashells and fossils and things to sell to the tourists who were coming to the area. Now, this was not necessarily a scientific pursuit as Richard was undertaking it. And many of the fossils which were sold perceived to be something other than records of prehistoric life. Something magic. There were the aminoids, which are like the sheep horn looking fossils with like tassel things coming out, like a little, you know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, they were called snake stones. And then the belemnites, or the, the bullet or probe shaped looking mollusk fossils, they were called devil's fingers. Oh no. Um, and some fossils and bones were believed to have healing qualities. So they were Magic. sold kind of more like that. Yeah. Richard would bring Mary and Joseph along with him to hunt for fossils. And he even made Mary a little child-sized pick, which is adorable. I guess I need to make our little girl a child-sized pick. Apparently. We'll post a video of her talking about Mary Anning because she does it with such enthusiasm. It's adorable. (laughs) But whenever pieces of the unstable cliff would fall off, the Annings would rush to the shore and look through the debris for newly uncovered fossils before the tide came in and washed them out to sea. Now, the treasures were sold outside the family home. Richard really hoped to buy a storefront, but this was not to be because he would die after a cliff fall uh, while suffering the ongoing effects of tuberculosis. Bad luck. Yes. He needed a good luck fossil. Shouldn't have sold it. He died when Mary was just 11 years old. And though he had worked very hard during his lifetime to provide for his family, he left no savings and significant debts. So Mary's mother, Molly, was forced to apply for government relief, and they were barely getting by. The assistance available to them included small sums of money, some food, and some clothing. Very bare bones. So naturally, the family continued to supplement their subsidies by finding and selling fossils. All three of the surviving Annings were fairly knowledgeable and proficient fossil hunters. But Molly ran the stall, which sold the finds. That was her primary interest in the endeavor. But in 1811, Joseph discovered an ichthyosaur skull. Months later, Mary uncovered the rest of the skeleton. She kind of worked tirelessly on it. And they sold their discovery for 23 pounds, which would be roughly around $2,066 today. Now, eventually it was acquired by the British Museum, where it was named by Charles Koenig in 1819. And when they found it, they didn't have a clue what it was. Like, you can even read in, you know, the Jules Verne story, like, oh, this giant crocodile. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's got the name by then. He does, he does. But I'm just saying. Like, like that is referencing, they thought it was a crocodile. When the person who acquired it from the Anning sold it to the British Museum, they bought it under the ad 
like giant crocodile. Because it does have just this big, long, like snout looking thing Mm -hmm. full of sharp, nasty looking teeth. You don't want to meet one of those in a dark alley. No. Now, at the time of the discovery, the theory of extinction, the idea that animals, entire species could go extinct, it had only been around a brief moment. And Darwin wouldn't publish on the origin of the species for 48 more years. So this is way back. (laughs) Yes. This is the very start of any idea of paleontology. Right. It didn't have a name yet. It was geology. So Mary and her brother had discovered a new species when they were just 14 and 12 years old. The find was written up in 1814 by Everin Holm. This was the first scientific paper on the species. No one in the Anning family was mentioned in this published article. In 1815, when she was 14 and looking for fossils on the beach, she found the body of a young woman. It was a person who had died when the ship they were sailing on sank. This body was taken to the church, and it really bothered her. She visited the church every day, placing fresh flowers on the body until relatives eventually came to claim it. She'd attracted a few patrons. They would want to go on fossil hunts with her. And one such man was named Lieutenant Colonel James Birch. In 1820, when he realized what dire straits the family were in, they were about to like have to auction off their furniture. He sold some of the specimens that he had acquired from them on their behalf. He wrote to a friend, For the benefit of the poor woman and her son and daughter in Lyme, who have in truth found almost all of the fine things which have been submitted to scientific investigation, I may never again possess what I am about to part with, yet in doing it, I shall have the satisfaction of knowing that the money will be well applied. That's a really good man. It was very kind of him. And he's also, he's not only just like selling and trying to get them some money so they don't starve to death, he's also giving them credit. Right. He recognizes that he would not have what he has without them. He's, I mean, he's like really just putting their name out. He's not even putting their name out. Just kind of mentioning them even. Mm -hmm. But there was an auction that was held and around the equivalent of $40,000 was raised. And some of these profits were used to benefit the family. The geological, like I said, paleontology wasn't a thing yet. The geological community did become aware of the Annings through this auction. Now, there was also local gossip. Some people said that Birch had done this because he was in love with Mary. Cod swallop. <laughs> That's kind of what I think. There's no but evidence maybe. to support this. It doesn't matter. Whatever. It was still nice. Hell of a gesture. But also raised their profile. It did. Now, Mary's natural curiosity and intelligence were very apparent in her endeavors and efforts to learn more about the field that she was participating in. She would borrow papers from others in this field and hand copy the text and illustrations for personal study. And she spent time dissecting modern specimens like cuttlefish to learn more about the anatomy of the fossils that she was uncovering. She made every attempt to keep current and scientific jargon, and eventually she even taught herself French so that she could read and study the work of George Cuvier. Who is considered like the father of modern paleontology. She also learned how naturalists made deductions from observations, how museums prepared specimens for display, and became an expert on the delicate work of removing fossilized bones from rock and reconstructing skeletons. Now, Lady Harriet Sylvester, a widow of a London official, visited Lyme in 1824 and mentioned Mary in her journal. The extraordinary thing in this young woman is that she has made herself so thoroughly acquainted with the science that the moment she finds bones, she knows to what tribe they belong. She fixes the bones on a frame with cement and makes drawings and has them engraved. It is certainly a wonderful instance of divine favor that this poor ignorant girl should be so blessed, for by reading an application she seems to arrive at the degree of knowledge as to be in the habit of writing and talking with professors 
and other clever men on the subject, and they all acknowledge that she understands more of the science than anyone else in this kingdom. I find it amazing that she can be like this poor, ignorant girl. Knows more than all the scientists. <laughs> but just to say ignorant. I love him. <laughs> what a curio this curio girl is. So the field of study that Mary had been pursuing was dubbed paleontology in 1822 by Henri de Blanville. And Joseph eventually took up an apprenticeship with an upholsterer and took up a more traditional trade. But Mary continued to support herself by selling fossils. Now, on December 10th of 1823, she found the first complete plesiosaur. Now, the plesiosaur discovery brought considerable attention. The famous French scientist George Cuvier doubted the validity of the specimen when he first examined a detailed drawing Mary had made, and he declared that the head of the creature was much too small for such a large body. But Cuvier realized that it was a genuine find once he examined the fossil itself at the London Geological Society, which had its largest ever audience for that occasion. Wow. Now, Mary had not been invited to this examination because she was a lady because she was a lady women were not allowed to join this society until 1904 but when he examined it he declared it is the most amazing creature ever discovered soc le bleu (laughs) and the annings became legitimate and respected fossilist at this moment in 1823 george cumberland who was an artist and fossil collector wrote about one of Mary's ichthyosaurs, the very finest specimen of a fossil ichthyosaurus that has ever been found in Europe. We owe entirely to the persevering industry of a young female fossilist of the name Anning and her dangerous employment. To her exertions, we owe nearly all the fine specimens of ichthyosaurs in the great collections. And the Bristol Mirror wrote in 1823, the persevering female has for years gone daily in search of fossil remains of importance at every tide. For many miles under the hanging cliffs at Lyme, whose fallen masses are her immediate object, as they alone contain the valuable relics of the former world, which must be snatched at the moment they fall, at the continual risk of being crushed by the half-suspended fragments they leave behind, or left to be destroyed by the returning tide. To her exertions we owe nearly all the fine specimens of ichthyosaur. So Mary eventually managed to save up enough to buy a storefront in Lyme. Wonderful. She was 27 at the time. Amazing. So she discovered all of these things before that. Well, yes, she did. Many prominent collectors visited her shop. She took up a residence above the shop. George William Featherstonhowe was among them, and he called Anning a very clever, funny creature. So Mary made many discoveries in 1828. She discovered an ancient ancestor of squid or cuttlefish. They had ink bags. Like a squid. Oh, okay. So all those dissections and things. We're paying off. Yeah. But the most remarkable thing about it is that the ink in the ink bags could be used. Really? Yes. Crazy. An artist in Lyme Regis began making drawings of the fossils using this ink and selling them. Wonderful. And I want this tchotchke. (laughs) Now, after the ink bags, she made another very important discovery. Hmm. Poop. Scientific term. Just kidding. It's not. She found ichthyosaur poop fossils in the stomach of a fossilized specimen, and she broke it open and discovered fish bones and scales and things, and realized that she could tell about the creature's diet by breaking these open and looking inside of them to see what they'd eaten and digested. She pioneered the study of corpolites. 
So before this, they thought that corporalites were just like digestion stands. Oh, well, fair. Like a like, chicken would have. Like a, yeah. But then, not like a chicken, she found something that can fly. <laughs> what do you mean? She found the first pterosaur fossil outside of Germany. And it was the Dimorphodon macronix. And in 1829, she found an even more complete plesiosaur than her original discovery. And then she discovered the Squalaraja, an extinct fish that seemed to be part shark and part ray. In 18, 18- which, which is really important for the evolutionary tree. Okay. <laughs> FYI. Good to know. In 1830, she discovered one of her most complete and beautiful fossilized creature, the Plesiosaurus macrocephalus. And a cast of this fossil is on display at the Natural History Museum in Paris, France. Do you know where a cast of the ichthyosaurus skull she found is located? In Toronto. Which we just saw. Ta-da! And we'll bring that to you. So in 1830, an artist created a drawing of prehistoric life. His name was Henry de la Beche, and profits from these prints were donated to the Annings. The image was very popular and seemed to really capture the public animation. The title of the painting was Duria and Tukor, a more ancient dorset. There's an ichthyosaur, a plesiosaur, and a pterosaur, and it's the first pictorial representation of prehistoric life based on fossil evidence. The art form is known as paleo art. That's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. It's like what every kid reads about all started here. Yes. It was in the dinosaur books that our kids love to look at, and I don't mind looking at too. Oh, well, like <laughs> I had one that I like wore out, like the spine eventually broke. <laughs> that was my big dinosaur book when I was a kid. So in 1833, Trey, who is Mary's black and white terrier that she always took with her to go hunting for fossils, was killed when a large chunk of the cliff fell off in a rock slide. Now she herself narrowly escaped the falling rocks, and she wrote to a friend. Perhaps you will laugh when I say that the death of my old faithful dog quite upset me. The cliff fell upon him and killed him in a moment before my eyes, and close to my feet. It was but a moment between me and the same fate. Mary never married or had children. In 1837, the German naturalist Ludwig Leichhardt wrote, We had the pleasure of making the acquaintance of the Princess of Paleontology. Love the title. And it stuck. I love it. Miss Anning. She is strong Energetic spinster of about 28 years of age. She's tanned and masculine in expression every morning and after every storm at sea. She goes walking and clambering on the slopes to see whether fossils have been brought to light by the falls of the rock or the wave action. Now, at the time he wrote this, she was actually 10 years older than he thought. I was going to say like, ooh, old 28 spinster. Mm -hmm. Now, even during her lifetime, Mary realized that she was not getting the kind of credit that men got in this field like she wasn't naive about it anna maria penny who is one of her friends and who would sometimes go with her to look for fossils wrote she is very kind and good to all her own relations and what money she gets by collecting fossils goes to them or anyone else who wants it but she also wrote about her friend's frustrations that she was not being fully credited she says the world has used her ill and she does not care for it according to her account these men of learning have sucked her brains and made a great deal by publishing works of which she furnished the contents while she derived none of the advantages now she'd been growing more and more sickly every year she was kind of withering and in 1845 she was officially diagnosed with breast cancer 
Now, when the Geological Society's members learned what was going on with her, they did start a fund to pay for her treatment. But her treatment made people more skeptical of her. Why? She was given laudanum. Oh. And everyone's like, well, she's just turned into an old spinster drunk. drunk. Now, she refused to tell people that she was sick. So no one knew she was... Just, just tough. Yeah, and no one knew she was taking laudanum for an illness, so naturally gossip ensued. She died when she was just 47 years old on March 9th of 1847, and she was buried in the churchyard of Lyme Regis Parish Church. Three years later, the Geological Society paid for a large stained glass window that shows religious acts of charity, which is dedicated to her. During Anning's lifetime, a Swiss paleontologist named Louis Agassiz named two fish species for her, Acrotus aningae and Belenstomus aningae. In doing so, he acknowledged his thanks for her help that she gave him when he visited Lyme in 1834. Later namings for Anning's Anning have been a therapsid reptile, genus Anningia, a, bivel, a bivalve mollusk, genus Anningella, a plesiosaur genus, Anningsora, and the Ichthyosaurus aningae species. In 2010, the Royal Society recognized Mary Anning as one of the 10 British women who have most influenced the development of science. And she really was kind of lost to history for so long. Well, it's interesting because she was always popular in children's books, like as early as 1925. That's so funny. There were children's books about her, I guess because she started when she was 11. Oh, right. When and, she was 12, she yeah, found yeah. like the first skeleton. And yeah. I guess that's always appealing to children. But that's where a lot of her biography comes from. There is a, a museum in Lyme Regis which has collected her correspondence and like her commonplace book, which is like where friends would write letters and things like that. But it's, it's hard to find a lot of in-depth adult oriented information about Mary Anning. Yeah, because like like we mentioned, like I mean I know about her because I'm just interested in the field, but she's featured in Odette's like fifty woman scientist book. And her Women Who Dared book. Yeah. Which I bought for her on a whim and she loves it. She loves a biography before bed. So now that we know where the plesiosaur came from, and that it has been used in fantastical ways for centuries. Well, and also there was that very famous piece of art. So I'm including yeah. that and and art and writings in movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can see how it was such a popular idea that this maybe was this prehistoric creature that had survived eons. That we're just finally catching a glimpse of. Well, I think it's amazing. Like when I was reading about Anning, it's like she helped prove extinction was a thing. And I was like, oh my God, we had to do that. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't even, you're taught that from the time you're little. Dinosaurs went extinct. And so a lot of people very quickly brought up that that original big sighting, the Spicer sighting, where they thought they saw something walk across the road. (laughs) With a lamb in its mouth. Was brought up almost immediately as a possibility. In October of 1933, Campbell, who wrote that first article about his friends seeing something in the lake. The ducks. Maybe it's fighting ducks. Also reported about a sighting he had. (laughs) Being of the same form as a prehistoric animal, resembling most nearly the plesiosaurus, one afternoon a short time ago, 
I saw a creature raise its head and body from the lock, pause, moving its head, a small head on a long neck, rapidly from side to side. While it was above water, I could see the swirl made by each movement of its limb, and the creature seemed to be fully 30 feet in length. Then, after that was published, he like told a friend about it. Uh, he came back later and said, oh, it's just a few cormorants. Don't worry about that. It's flapping its wings. Those nasty snake birds. Those are those birds, little black birds, the long necks. Snake birds. That's what they're called here. Snake birds. Also, I just realized something. The mutton thing. I realized where we get the mutton. Trolling with mutton. The dinosaur had a lamb in its mouth. They're like, it likes Uh, sheep. I think of that. So that's why. It's all very logical. (laughs) So now while Campbell backed off of that story, he then later claimed to see it 18 more times. So there could be 18 snake birds. (laughs) Just say. Or fighting ducks. Whack. So the idea of a plesiosaurus all started with that George Spicer sighting. Now prior to that, there was no records of long neck sightings before that case. Because Kelpies don't have long necks. They have long backs. Everyone knows that. Right. So where did this multi-humped, long-necked, serpentine thing, where did, why, when? Well, a lot of people talk about how King Kong came out in 1933. Shut up. Which, other than a giant ape. <laughs> we know that part, yes. Also features a giant, long-necked water monster. Now, the Scotsman in the paper commented, fearsome-looking monsters, giving the impression that its monsters have newly emerged from the primeval slime. So in this scene, you've got the guys that are on the boat. They're going to Skull Island. They come in contact with some sort of creature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, at first, the viewer is thought to think it's like a plesiosaur, mm-hmm. where it sticks its long neck out of the water and attacks the crew. But then, as they finally think they're safe to land... It's revealed that it's really some kind of like a swimming a, um, elephant. Diplodocus. Same thing. And of course, that would explain the crossing the street part. I mean, there's some pretty thorough analysis of this saying that even the dinosaur crosses the street in the same direction in the movie as he does in the sighting. Jacob. Yes. Why did the monster cross the road? Why? Because King Kong came out that weekend. (laughs) (laughs) And even in the scene, the dinosaur grabs a surviving crew member in its mouth and shakes him just like Nessie does with the lamb. And believe it or not, in an interview a year after the sighting, Spicer talked about seeing King Kong. This is amazing. This ties everything up very neatly. Oh, yeah. So this is our now classic feedback loop that we bring up all the time of pop entertainment, news media, and this kind of supernatural belief, just cycling. Ah, the spin cycle of urban legends. (laughs) And you mentioned that movie that they were like preparing a movie. Mm -hmm. The feature film, The Secret of the Lock, was in cinemas less than a year after Spicer's sighting. And the lead character in it declares the monster to be a diplodocus. So people love to say that this could be some kind of prehistoric creature. Yes, they do. One of your problems is that the lock is not that old. Ah, ah, that that detail. (laughs) It was gouged into the ground by a glacier about 10,000 years ago. That's not going to do it. 
So the entire region was buried under 4,000 feet of solid ice for the 20,000 years prior to the loch's formation. Now, it's also not large enough to support a pod of plesiosaurs. They've looked at, like, fish populations and determined that there wouldn't even be enough fish for them to all eat and survive. And, of course, no remains have been found of any Nessie. Well, except the model. What model? (laughs) There was a model created for a Sherlock Holmes film, and the initial one was lost and is now at the bottom of the lock. So someone's going to find it. They found it. Oh, okay. Using like sonar, like in the last few years. It's really funny. So when Bertram Mills was making his like hundred thousand dollar, bring me your, bring me out your Nessies, show me your Nessies. Oh no. Show me your Nessies. Um, show me your Nessies. I am a lady. There was. I found this and I couldn't refind it. They made a bride of Nessie to try to lure the monster out. Oh yes, 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 yes. I did say that. And. I just think that's hilarious. (laughs) Some people will say that there are hidden tunnels under the lake that go to the sea. That's one I hear about a lot. Um, That's because no one, it's really easy to disprove that they could go via the river because it's not deep at all. Mm -hmm. Like you could like trudge across it in some areas. Okay. But the lake is 50 feet above sea level, so it would drain into the ocean. Okay, so no infinite cathedral cavern is gonna gonna house a pod of plesiosaurs, is what you're telling me. I'm saying it's 99 percent unlikely. But you can't say that there's a 100 percent confirmation that it couldn't be a monster. There's a chance. There's a chance. So what is it? Well, there are lots of theories. Okay. Now, besides just the kind of like hoax theory or the people just making it up theory, spotted otters. I like otters. They do these rolling dives, which could be seen as undulating coils. They're adorable, too. So I'm, I'm, They do. Yeah. And otters do live around Loch Ness. And one witness from 1993 even described Nessie as, it certainly looked like three or four otters together going in a bunch. Okay. So otters fighting ducks. Uh, one interesting thing is standing waves. What is that? So the lock has a you know, really rocky surface and sides, and this can encourage waves to be reflected back in different directions, and they can combine to create these really large, oddly shaped waves. Okay, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll that post, makes sense. Yeah, I'll post a video of, uh, it's from the Smithsonian Channel, and they went to a wave lab, like where they had this like, you know, like million dollar wave pool, mm-hmm. and they did it. You know, they like, they created the different, ways that you could have standing waves and they create these crazy shapes just from waves reflecting off each this other. This is like the infrasound well, explanation. A, well that's what waves are energy. So mm-hmm. a wave is not water moving. It's energy moving through the water. Like if you see a wave coming from twenty feet away, it's not the same water. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's true. The energy moving through the water, picking up the water. So, yeah, it works just like sound. You know, sound can be combined in different ways to either add or subtract from itself. No, I meant that it was the infrasound theory in that I found it credible. Oh, okay. (laughs) But yes, that's all true. Uh, Dolphins or seals is a very popular idea. Do they have seals in the lock? They do. And dolphins. Oh, okay. They can get into the lock from the river. 
Okay. But they the don't North need sea. the depths that Nessie would need. Exactly. Or okay. the massive amount of fish. But not elephant seals. So it's not crazy that they were like, this is a weird seal. Right. Because exactly. elephant seals can weigh up to like 4,000 pounds. No, they're massive. They're massively huge. Monstrous. I dare say. Even our buddy Marmaduke Weatherell felt it was a seal. True. Or a hippo. But no, there are many, many reports of porpoises and seals in the lock. Without a doubt. And and speedboats. That too. <laughs> well, and the speedboats can also cause the standing waves. Right. Now, one caveat to the plesiosaur hypothesis is that idea of is it some ancient creature that's been hiding for eons that we didn't know still existed? One thing, just to give them like a grain of... A shred of something. Credibility, something. A grain of salt. Sure. Is, you know, you have the coelacanth, mm. which is this six foot long, 200 pound fish. And it is a lobe finned fish. The only other animal that's still alive like that is the lungfish but has all of these features that link it back to prehistoric times. It was thought to have gone extinct at the same time as the dinosaurs. But in 1938, one was discovered off the coast of South Africa. And they are this like evolutionary transitional species between fish and tetrapods. What's a tetrapod? Any four-legged animal. Well, that's broad. (sighs) Well, you know, so like at some point, fish... Became amphibians. <laughs> and this is that step between. So they found the missing link. For that, that link. <laughs> there are lots of missing links. And it turned out like fishermen along the coast of South Africa had been catching this for years. And they called it a gombesa. They didn't eat it. They just thought it was a bycatch and they just toss it or use it for bait or whatever. But in 38, a museum official just happened upon a recently caught specimen brought in by a South African fishing trawler. And our fossil fish came back to life. But that's 1938. I mean, that's almost 100 years ago. Have they continued to see them? Coelacans? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I found a video of like a scuba diver with one. And I never realized like how big it was until I saw that. <laughs> you can post it. Oh, well. I had lots of video for this one. Yeah. But some people feel like it's even more closely related to mammals than it is to modern fish how interesting okay i'm gonna go get lost in a coelacanth rabbit hole and i mean when it came up there was plenty of controversy the specimen wasn't properly preserved and many people just dismissed it thinking it was just mistaken identity and it wasn't until 1952 when they got the next specimen and were able to kind of like truly prove it and then they found even another species of coelacanth in 1998 off the waters of Indonesia. Amazing. But they're not saying it's a coelacanth. They're saying it's a dinosaur. True. (laughs) Not the same thing. And also that it's giant. So I'm sure this was like chalk up a point for evolution. Right. We've proved another step in the tree of life. Well, then it will please you to know that the other side is on the case. What other side? The creationist. My favorite. (laughs) So... On a cryptid website, okay. it explains how people use cryptozoology in creationism. And it's not a fan. By weaving the Bible with folklore, creationists are able to paint a world where raw powers of myth can be encountered not only through sacred stories, but in Loch Ness, the Congo, and even Blanco, Texas. 
Between the realm of myth and science, cryptozoology has become a sort of backdoor for those seeking to appropriate the cultural authority of science. Well, isn't that interesting? So an article from the Herald Scotland boasts the headline, How American Fundamentalist Schools Are Using Nessie to Disprove Evolution. The Herald Scotland reports that a certain textbook in the ACE curriculum transcends standard creationist teachings and instead informs the students that the Loch Ness Monster is proof positive that evolution never happened. And here I always assume that Nessie was the great beast from the Book of Revelation. It wouldn't make more sense for him to be the Leviathan than anything. So, the ACE textbook, Biology 1099, which is from Accelerated Christian Education Incorporated, reads... I'm so excited. Are dinosaurs alive today? Scientists are becoming more convinced of their existence. Have you ever heard of the Loch Ness Monster in Scotland? I have. Nessie, for short has been recorded on sonar from a small submarine and described by eyewitnesses and photographed by others. Nessie appears to be a plesiosaur. I'm sorry, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so God says it's real. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, So, a little background. Yes. The reason this all matters now to the public is that Louisiana Governor, former, thankfully, Bobby Jindal, recently signed a law that sets up the largest voucher program in any state in the country. Some 125 private and religious schools from across the state are qualified to participate in the Louisiana Believes program, which gives families public money to pay school tuition for their children. It is interesting to note that the schools originally on this list included the Islamic School of Greater New Orleans, which withdrew its application for voucher students after an outcry about its participation by some lawmakers. It seems fundamentalist Christian schools are acceptable to receive public money, but Islamic schools are not. Republican State Representative Kenneth Harvard was quoted by the Associated Press that he would not support public funding for Islamic teaching. Democratic State Representative Sam Jones told the Associated Press it'll be the Church of Scientology next year. This is where support of vouchers is leading us, to the public paying for a child to learn that the Loch Ness Monster was a dinosaur, or I guess is a dinosaur, and coexisted with humans. This is important to young Earth creationists who believe the Earth was created no longer than 10,000 years ago and not 4.5 billion years ago, as estimated by science. They also believe there were dinosaurs on Noah's Ark. That sounds like a terrible plan. They've not seen Lost World. And what happens when you put a T-Rex on a boat? Nope. No, clearly they were not paying attention. They're like Jurassic Park. And so, of course, Louisiana is now the only uh, state that has that program. But it is so interesting that they're just dying for some kind of factoid to try to prove their ideas. But I think it's so interesting because it's like they know that science holds this credibility Mm -hmm. and they are using the language of science. Right. Well, they're always going to do that. It's so like, I think that's what's so infuriating to me is that it appropriates the enemy's tactic. (laughs) You know, like it's subterfuge in a weird way. But back to Nessie. Now that we have, uh, discussed why this made international news. In 2000, William J. Gibbons led a Christian expedition to Cameroon to search for the Makolo Membe. Oh, that's like a dinosaur in the Congo. Yes. I read about that one. He received $50,000 in funding from Paul Rockle, a Canadian wealth manager and young earth creationist. And then there was a subsequent expedition in 2003 funded by creationist Milt Marcy. Gibbons never found his creature but his findings were reported on on the Texas-based Institute of Creation Research. Marcy funded another expedition for Peter Beach and Brian Sass 
whose website, Genesis Park, is dedicated to proving that humans and dinosaurs coexisted. Genesis Park? Why would you want to tie it to Jurassic Park? That was a tragedy. The dinosaurs always get out. I wish someone would fund us to go look for cryptids. Oh my god. Hello, Travel Channel. My Pope phone is waiting. So this is a thing that's happening in the world that you probably didn't know happened. Because you're sane. <laughs> like, one of the like little illustrations was like, yes, that's right, Jesus coexisted with dinosaurs. We don't know if he actually rode them, but he probably did. I hope so. In my comic book, he did. Well, he's riding a dinosaur in the picture. Yes. And smiling. Hell yes. Of course he And is. looking very Markin. Anyway, anyway. Like, even if you believed in creationism and young earth theory why were the dinosaurs then there was still like five thousand years six thousand years before jesus came around i don't know i've not read enough creationist theory i know why why because jesus could write them (laughs) because that imagery gets every 10 year old boy with that textbook going jesus is so rad he's riding a velociraptor they're as big as chickens no chickens (laughs) so the chief communications officer at young earth creationist organization Answers in Genesis, Mark Louie, was a fan of the decision to remove the Loch Ness Monster from the textbook a few years later. There are just so many legends, like the dragon mentioned in Beowulf, and numerous accounts of St. George and the dragon, and so on. They can't be dismissed. However, because the Loch Ness Monster is a questionable example to use, and also because the claim has been such a distraction, we agree that it's wise to delete Nessie's reference from a textbook that lists possible living monsters. Job describes a real creature called Leviathan. That's what I said. It appears to have been a sea monster, says Louis. In addition, there are hundreds of dragon legends from around the world, including those of sea monsters and also creatures resembling dinosaurs. They can't be ignored. There's ample circumstantial evidence for sea-dwelling monsters as well as dinosaurs living during the past 4,000 years that can be used instead in science books. In in science books? Yes. (laughs) I mean, there's like the giant squid, there's the you know, sperm whale, those are cool. Those are not dinosaurs. They're fucking cool. Well, that doesn't help us, does it now? <laughs> Someone's never seen the squid and the whale at the <laughs> museum in New York. Why would he go there? That is a pagan place. I critique it. So the goal, presumably, for these people is to convince their followers, who might be swayed, that they have a real case for creationism and or against evolution. As such... The areas they are going to target are are likely to be things that people misunderstand or don't know and appreciate already, and so can be convinced in spite of scientific data, even though they no longer pursue the lines of arguments such as fossils being forgeries, because it is so transparently the case that there are millions of them, and that they are real and easily found by anyone who searches in the right places. In short, creationist claims can somewhat ironically tell us, as science educators, about the areas that we might improve upon. That's so interesting. See, I never thought of that. Of course, they used to just say, oh, that's all bullshit. <clears throat> it's just created by Zionists or something. Uh, hey, it's, you know, it's, it's all created. It's all fake. Those are just not, those never existed. I didn't think of that. That they, they twisted it. They changed. And like, oh, yeah, no, those are real. But. But. Jesus wrote it. <laughs> Okay, fine. There can be a dinosaur if Jesus can ride it. Jesus was like, handing out the loaves and fish, riding a dinosaur. <laughs> Do you know that actually... It was a drive-thru restaurant? No, if you read the actual like Greek text of the Gospels, mm-hmm. it's not actually like a donkey he rides in on. 
but a velociraptor. Badass Hebrews. Anyway, in conclusion, if the Loch Ness Monster popped up from the depths tomorrow, or a sauropod dinosaur walked out of the Congo, or a pterosaur flew out of New Guinea, all things creationists have claimed with a straight face to be likely, it would be a truly incredible event. Paleontologists, most of all, would be utterly delighted and awestruck. But what we would not be is incredulous in the impossibility of it, or abandoning evolutionary theory, or rethinking the fossil record. To do that, we'd have to completely misunderstand what the fossil record represents and what evolution says about extinction. So then people have taken the idea of the Loch Ness Monster and been able to like kind of twist it and use it in their own ways. It's just fascinating. But it's also so interesting that people are still so dedicated to finding it. And I think this is something you see often in the cryptid community is that that mystery is so enticing that human need to know is so embedded within our souls. It's part of who we are. And you can see it in the searches now and you can see it all the way back to Mary Anning risking her life searching through the cliffs just to find out more. And people like not knowing because that thrill of discovery is is fleeting because knowing the answer is not as much fun as the search. But it's so universal. We can all identify with it. And as you were talking about the need to know and the need to explore, a song popped in my head and I'm not going to sing it for you. Sorry, but I will read you the lyrics. What's so amazing that keeps us stargazing and what do we think we might see? Someday we'll find it. The rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. All of us under its spell. We know that it's probably magic. Have you been half asleep and have you heard voices? I've heard them calling my name. Is this the sweet sound that called the young sailors? The voice might be one and the same. I've heard it too many times to ignore it. It's something that I'm supposed to be. Someday we'll find it. The rainbow connection. The lovers. The dreamers. And me. So whatever it is that you're searching for, whatever your mystery is, whatever your driving force is, whatever wakes you up in the middle of the night and keeps that desire to explore alive, is part of your humanity. It's part of what makes you a piece of this tapestry. The history that goes all the way back to the earliest man and will go on for generations. It is this universal curiosity that makes a mystery irresistible. And so maybe it doesn't matter as much what the mystery is, just that it exists and just that you want to find it. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story. <laughs>